You're listening to Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's podcast. We'd love to worship with you today. Today's message comes from Associate Pastor Andrew Morton. Sometimes choices don't seem black and white, but they can leave you black and blue. I can't take credit for that line. That line actually appeared as part of a Christian pop song from the late 1990s entitled, of all things, What Would Jesus Do? Now, if you lived through or know much about the Christian youth culture of the 1990s, then you know that for better or worse, that phrase, what would Jesus do, sums up a lot of its spirit. At the time that this song was going out on the radio waves, a lot of the enthusiastic young listeners were also wearing bracelets on their wrists with the letters WWJD, what would Jesus do? That phrase, whether in singable or wearable form, suggested a strategy for navigating life's decisions by asking what Jesus would do in our situation. And in many ways, this can be helpful, although in in a lot of ways it kind of makes it subjective, and sometimes what Jesus would do ends up looking a lot like what we would do within that framework. But there are also other helpful questions we could ask, like, what did Jesus do during his time on earth, and and what has Jesus told us to do with our lives? Uh, but, But I think we can agree that a lot of the heart of this song is perhaps something we can resonate with. All of us have to make decisions, and rarely are those decisions clear-cut and simple. Often making them can leave us feeling bruised and bewildered, wondering, did we make the right choice? Often filled with remorse or regret, wondering if we could go back and do things differently, what we might do instead. Friends, navigating life can be hard. Difficult decisions, dilemmas, and seasons that require a lot of soul-searching and discernment, they are a never-ending part of our lives. The decision-making process, which is, which is rarely easy to begin with, is made even more difficult by two other factors. One of those factors is the fact that we are finite creatures. We have limited perspectives. There, there are natural limits to our knowledge and to our experience simply because we're human. There, there are some things that I know, but there are even more things that I don't know. There are some things that I have experienced and learned how to do, but there are even more things that I have no clue how to do until I find myself in that situation. So we have these natural limitations just as human beings, but on top of that, we also have our fallen human natures. Humanity was already created finite, but but now we're also fallen, which means our values and our priorities have become distorted by sin's impact on our lives. Our our decision-making ability is impeded by the broken patterns uh, that we perpetuate in our day-to-day lives. Folly draws us in like a magnet. Often we rebel against the wisdom of God, Our itching ears seek out voices that will tell us what we want to hear, even if what we want is not at all good for ourselves and for those around us. Apart from God's grace, we could remain stuck in these situations. But friends, here is the good news. Jesus Christ is the very wisdom of God, and He has stepped into our lives and our world. 
He's come to redeem us and to return us to the wisdom that we were made for. As we finish up our stuck sermon series this morning, Jesus invites us to walk in his wisdom. When we try to navigate the difficult decisions of life, God's word calls us to seek wisdom at its source, to pursue wisdom in our daily lives, to surround ourselves with godly and wise advisors, and to trust God and take the next step that is ahead of us. As we do these things in response to God's grace, we find that Jesus Christ will lead us, will guide us, and will use even our stuck moments to reveal his faithfulness and to remind us that his grace really, truly is enough for us. In our pursuit of wise counsel in our lives, it is vital for us to start in the right place. We do that by seeking wisdom at its source. Now, as Christians, we value wisdom not just because of what it is and what it can do for us, but because of who it is a reflection of. Because wisdom is not merely an abstract philosophy or a code of conduct. It is a way of living that reflects who God is and what God values. Now, it's true for us to say that God is wise, but it's even more true for us to say that God is wisdom itself, the same, that, same way that we might say that God is love, that, that this quality is something that flows out of his character and his person. So if we want to find wisdom, we have to seek it at its source, and that is a personal source. We must seek it from God and God alone. One of our key passages for today is 1 Kings chapter 3, where we see God as the abundant source and the generous giver of wisdom. This passage describes an event that happens early in the reign of the young King Solomon. He has recently inherited the throne of his father David, and even though he is off to a good start in establishing his rule, he is in over his head, and he knows that he's in over his head. So one night after Solomon has spent all day offering sacrifices to the Lord, the Lord appears to him at the place of worship, and we pick up here in the account at verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon during the night in a dream, and God said, ask for whatever you want me to give you. Solomon answered, you have shown great kindness to your servant, my father David, because he was faithful to you and righteous and upright in heart. You have continued this great kindness to him and have given him a son to sit on his throne this very day. Verse 7, now, Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David, but I am only a little child and do not know how to carry out my duties. Your servant is here among the people you have chosen, a great people, too numerous to count or number. So give your servant a discerning heart to govern your people and to distinguish between right and wrong. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? Now, can you imagine what it would be like to have God appear to you and ask you specifically to ask him for anything? Now, note that God here doesn't actually give Solomon a blanket promise that he'll give him anything he asks for because many of the things that we may want actually aren't good for us, and God would do us a disservice in just granting every single wish of our hearts. 
But what God does do is he invites Solomon into that conversation. He invites him to ask, to open up his heart and to see God's generosity for himself. I think it's important for us to remember that as we come to the Lord in our own prayers that God doesn't promise to give us anything that we ask for, but he does invite us to ask for anything. So how does Solomon respond? First, he begins by recognizing God's faithfulness in the past. God has acted with kindness to David, and the very fact that Solomon is king right now is an extension of that kindness to David. God's faithfulness invites a faithful response. So Solomon asks the Lord to supply what he needs to carry out his calling faithfully. He knows that he alone does not have what it takes to do the job. That kind of humility and realism that we see in Solomon is probably part of why he and not one of his many brothers was chosen to inherit the kingdom. To govern well, Solomon knows that he needs to have a discerning heart. He needs to know the difference between what is right and what is wrong. Because wisdom, character, and living in accordance with biblical morality, these are not simply optional luxuries for a good leader. They are non-negotiable. Solomon understands this, and instead of trying to ignore or brush away his inadequacies, he owns them. He brings them before the Lord, and he asks God to supply the wisdom that he will need in order to be a good king. Wisdom is not just, as we've said, an abstract intellectual quality. Wisdom is practical in nature. It affects how we live. Christian writer Brett McCracken offers us a helpful description of the practical nature of wisdom when he says, to simply accumulate more knowledge is not to be wise. We probably all know people who have a lot of knowledge but don't have wisdom. McCracken goes on to say, wisdom is knowing what to do with knowledge gained through various means of education, how to apply knowledge and information in everyday life, how to discern if something is true or not, how to live well in light of truth gained. Wisdom is not merely knowing the right answers. It's about living rightly. It's about determining which right answer is best. It's a moral orientation. So not only does Solomon ask to be given this right moral orientation, he is asking the right person. For God is the one in whom all truth finds its true orientation. Solomon looks for wisdom at its source. Continuing in verse 10, we find God's response. The Lord was pleased that Solomon had asked for this. So God said to him, since you have asked for this and not for long life or wealth for yourself, nor have asked for the death of your enemies, but for discernment in administering justice, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. Moreover, I will give you what you have not asked for, both wealth and honor, so that in your lifetime you will have no equal among kings. And if you walk in obedience to me and keep my decrees and commands as David your father did, I will give you a long life. So notice Solomon's desire here is, is not a selfish one. He wants to take good care of God's people. His request shows that he intends to put God's desires and the people's needs ahead of his own. 
And God responds to that by saying, yes, and. Yes, he will give Solomon great wisdom. And because Solomon is wise and has the heart of a servant leader, he will be an even greater blessing to his people if God also gives him wealth, fame, and a long life. God gives Solomon these things because he loves his people. and He knows that Solomon will be a conduit through whom these blessings will flow. And as you know about Solomon's life, you know that in many ways that was true, but Solomon was also imperfect. There were times that he missed the mark as well. Now, as we think about how to apply this passage to our lives today, we, we, we want to acknowledge the uniqueness of this situation. We, we don't want to distort this passage by using it as a reason to treat God like a vending machine. I, I think a careful look at these verses shows us that God's willingness to provide health and wealth is secondary to his interest in Solomon's character and readiness to serve others. Solomon's situation was unique in many ways. What he needed to carry out his calling to serve God may not be the same as what we need to carry out our callings to serve God. But God is equally eager to give us what is required for the path that he has called us to walk. We see here that God is generous, that God wants to provide everything that we need to glorify and enjoy him. Bible scholar Dale Ralph Davis raises this question and makes this point. He says, now even though we are not kings, and even though we do not have the same level of kingdom responsibility as Solomon did, is not the God to whom we come the same lavish and generous God? And will he not respond to us with the same heart of generosity. Davis is not alone in making this point. The generosity of God is also something that the Apostle Paul, or sorry, the Apostle James, at least I didn't say the author of Hebrews, that the Apostle James highlights in James 1.5, as Heather reminded us when James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Again, we don't want to reduce this verse to a vending machine view of God, but here Scripture offers us another view of a generous God who wants to give us what we need in terms of character and maturity in order to flourish in His kingdom and bless others. This verse also affirms the biblical principle that wisdom is a good thing. Wisdom helps us to live a better life, a life that is more attuned to God's will and God's ways. We see this in Proverbs chapter 9, verses 10 through 12, where we read, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. For through wisdom your days will be many, and years will be added to your life. If you are wise, your wisdom will reward you. On the other hand, if you are a mocker, you alone will suffer. This reminds us that wisdom is practical. It helps us to live better lives. But why is the path of wisdom a better path? Again, because wisdom flows from God himself. That's why any human effort to grow in wisdom must go hand in hand with growing in our knowledge of God and our relationship with him. The 16th century reformer John Calvin really drives this point home. In the opening section of his landmark Institutes of the Christian Religion, Calvin reflects on how our knowledge of God reorients us to his true wisdom and teaches us to recognizing 
the, the limitations of our human wisdom apart from him. Calvin writes, should we once begin to raise our thoughts to God and reflect what kind of being he is and how absolute the perfection of that righteousness and wisdom and virtue to which as a standard we are bound to be conformed, if we do that, then, Calvin says, what formerly delighted us by its false show of righteousness will become polluted with the greatest iniquity. What strangely imposed upon us under the name of wisdom will disgust by its extreme folly. And what presented the appearance of virtuous energy will be condemned as the most miserable impotence. So far are those qualities in us which seem most perfect from corresponding to the divine purity. Calvin reminds us that once we see God, that changes how we see everything in our lives and in the world around us. Knowing God provides us with a framework that allows all of our knowledge to find its true place and its true meaning. Indeed, Calvin concludes that it is only after we have contemplated the face of God that we are able to really understand ourselves. So if we want to be wise, if we want to level up in our ability to live well in light of what is true and what is good and in light of what will lead to our flourishing and the flourishing of the people around us, then we must seek wisdom at its true source in God. But then what do we do? At that point, do we sit around and we wait for God to mysteriously download greater discernment into our minds? We think, okay, I prayed and I can feel myself getting more wise by the moment. Well, God could do that if he wants to, but he normally works through natural human processes to do these things. There's something for us to do. Instead of sitting around and waiting, we see that wisdom is applicational. So if we want to ask God to give us wisdom, then we need to also apply it to our lives so that it will take root and grow. We need to bring our lives into alignment with the things that we're asking God to do. This means pursuing wisdom in our daily lives. James, who as we just saw, tells us to ask God for wisdom if we lack it, goes on two chapters later to describe what the life of wisdom actually looks like. Picking up at James 3.13, he says, Who is wise and understanding among you? Let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. So, aha, we see wisdom is marked by humility. If I'm not a humble person, then I'm probably not as wise as I thought I was. James goes on to contrast the true wisdom of God with false human wisdom. And he describes heavenly wisdom in more detail in verses 17 and 18 when he says, But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. He says, peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. So if you want to be wise, what kind of person should you try to be? One who is humble one who is pure, one who loves peace and works for peace, one who is considerate of the needs of others, who shows mercy to others, who submits to authority, and who is fair-minded and sincere. To James, wisdom is less about knowledge than it is about character, and this process is reciprocal. The more we live this way, the wiser we become. 
and the wiser we become, the more our lives look like what we see in these verses. Another snapshot of the pursuit of a life of wisdom is found in Proverbs 2, verses 1 through 6, which says, My son, if you accept my words and store up my commands within you, turning your ear to wisdom and applying your heart to understanding, Indeed, if you call out for insight and cry aloud for understanding, and if you look for it as for silver and search for it as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. Here again, we see that wisdom both comes from God and requires our passionate pursuit. We are to store up the counsel we receive from people. We're to turn our ear toward wisdom and to apply our heart to it. We are to search for it purposefully. This is the greatest treasure hunt that we can go on in our lives. And it is in this pursuit that we go through the kind of character formation that produces wisdom in our lives. This doesn't happen right away. It takes time. Brett McCracken reminds us wisdom is not something you can Google or download in one fell swoop. It is accumulated over time and through experience. Pastor and writer John Ortberg agrees, saying much of the adventure of Christian living involves responsiveness to the guidance of the Holy Spirit. But how do we learn how to respond to the Holy Spirit? He says this guidance is not restricted to momentous decisions. It is learned mainly as we practice it on a continuing basis. It is in the day-in, day-out rhythms of life that wisdom is formed within our hearts and our souls. How do we practice this? Ortberg says we do it by looking to the growth of our souls, by feeding our souls on the right things. McCracken offers us a helpful visual of how to do this in what he calls the wisdom pyramid. Now, again, here's another throwback to the 90s or so. 30 years ago, the food pyramid was all the rage. We had a copy of that taped to our kitchen cupboard at home. And while nutritionists don't necessarily subscribe to the food pyramid today, McCracken uses this idea as a teaching tool to ask us, what does a balanced diet for our souls and our minds look like? And I know the print is very small on that diagram. So, so these are the categories he uses. He says that, uh, that at the bottom of the pyramid, the biggest food group for our hearts should be the Bible should be God's word, God's truth. It has to be the thing that our hearts and minds and souls feast upon the most. On top of that, building upon scripture is the church. This includes worship. It includes Christian community, being part of a family of faith where we are held accountable to one another and where we grow and sharpen one another. He says this is the next building block to grow and to become more wise. And these two, he says, are, are really foundational. The, the next three, uh, he says, you could really put in different orders depending on the person. Uh, but he recommends building upon that with nature, time spent in God's creation. And, and, that, and then books, things to feed the mind. Maybe for some of us it's books or audiobooks or podcasts, but things that stimulate our thinking about God and about God's world. And then on top of that, he recommends beauty, like music, and art, things that elevate our hearts and our minds that lift us up to the Lord. And then there's the top of the pyramid. 
If you remember the old food pyramid of yesteryear, that's where junk food went. And, and it had the label, use sparingly. And in that junk food location, Brett McCracken places, you can see a smartphone representing the internet, social media, electronic devices, and indeed, uh, media itself, reminding us, use these things sparingly. Now, our, our culture, in practice, gets this pyramid flipped upside down. For many people in our world, and it's not just in the world out there, many of us are tempted to do this as well, our biggest food group comes from the internet. It comes from the news. It comes from YouTube. It comes from social media. And the amount of time that we spend in worship, in community with other believers, in prayer, or in Scripture is a tiny fraction of the spiritual junk food that we consume. So McCracken reminds us, if we are relying on spiritual junk food as our main food source and starving ourselves of the true life-giving nutrients that we need, we should not be surprised if we don't have the wisdom that we want to have. We need to train our hearts and minds to feed on the right thing. We need to turn our culture's pyramid upside down and nourish our souls upon time spent in Scripture, in prayer, in worship, in community. And that's why it's so important for us to be a part of one another's lives and encourage one another to grow and feed on the right things. These are steps that we can all take to live the kind of life that becomes fertile soil for wisdom, to take root and grow in our lives. And this prepares the soil for making wise, God-honoring decisions. As we cultivate a life of wisdom, that will help us to develop more resilience against feeling stuck when we encounter difficult decisions or situations. But when those moments come, on top of seeking wisdom from God and cultivating a lifestyle of wisdom, the next most important thing that we can do to deal with those situations wisely is to listen to godly advisors. This principle appears all over the book of Proverbs. For instance, Proverbs 13, 20 urges us, walk with the wise and become wise, for a companion of fools suffers harm. In the same way, we find these words in Proverbs 15, 22, plans fail for lack of counsel, but with many advisors they succeed. If you want to be ready to handle difficult situations, surround yourself with wise, godly people. Again, this is true for a couple of reasons, because of our creaturely limitations. There's only so much that I know, so if I gather around me people who know things that I don't, then I am stronger and more informed than I would be on my own. Pastor, professor, and seminary president Gordon Smith reminds us, we must always assume that no one person has the wisdom we need to proceed to do what needs to be done. So we listen and learn and grow in our capacity to see the situation and the character of the challenges and the potential outcomes. Seeking wise counsel means gaining valuable insight, but it also means being open to honest feedback and constructive criticism. This is because we are both limited creatures and fallen creatures, because we make mistakes and we miss the mark. We need people who can confront us and correct us in a spirit of grace and truth. Now, this correction is usually hard to hear, but we can't grow without it. 
So in addition to surrounding ourselves with godly advisors, we need to have a spirit of openness. Benefiting from honest, wise critique means that we need to be humble and embrace difficult discipline. Proverbs 19.20 tells us, listen to advice and accept discipline. And at the end, notice not at the beginning, but at the end, you will be counted among the wise. Proverbs 15 elaborates on this idea in verses 31 through 33. Whoever heeds life-giving correction will be at home among the wise. Those who disregard discipline despise themselves, but the one who heeds correction gains understanding. Wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord, and humility, humility comes before honor. And just in case we haven't gotten the message yet, Proverbs 12, verse 1, makes it as simple and clear as possible. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but whoever hates correction is stupid. And after the second service, I'm going to have to have a talk with my kids about why that word that we tell them not to use appears in the Bible. <laughs> Pray for me on that one. Now, this, this kind of confrontation may not always be fun, but it's important. Dr. Smith reminds us that good decisions require the prerequisite, the prelude, good conversations. This is conversation marked by the give and take of good listening, mutual attentiveness, focused observations, and the capacity to say what needs to be said. That's not always easy, but it's important to have that ability to say what needs to be said when it needs to be said. Well, how do we do this? Smith offers this advice. He says, we listen twice as much as we speak. We ask good questions. We know that wisdom is found together through the very process of good conversation. He says, we know it takes time, and so we make time for conversation, and we learn to do it well. But what happens? What happens if we don't learn to do it well? What happens if we refuse to humble ourselves and to listen to advice? Scripture offers us a case study on what that looks like in its account of what happened early in the reign of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. In the early days of Rehoboam's reign, he too, like his father, faced a situation that required wisdom. The workers of Israel came to him asking for relief from their heavy labor. Turning ahead in the book of 1 Kings, we see how Rehoboam started off doing the right thing. He consulted wise advisors, but then he failed to listen to their wisdom. 1 Kings 12, 3 through 11. So they, the people of Israel, sent for Jeroboam, who was their representative, and he and the whole assembly of Israel went to Rehoboam and said to him, your father put a heavy yoke on us, but now lighten the harsh labor and the heavy yoke he put on us, and we will serve you. Rehoboam answered, Go away for three days and then come back to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam consulted the elders who had served his father Solomon during his lifetime. How would you advise me to answer these people, he asked. They replied, if today you will be a servant to these people and serve them and give them a favorable answer, they will always be your servants. Verse 8, but Rehoboam rejected the advice the elders gave him and consulted the young men who had grown up with him and were serving him. He asked them, what is your advice? How should we answer these people who say to me, lighten the yoke your father put on us? 
The young men who had grown up with him replied, These people have said to you, Your father put a heavy yoke on us, but make our yoke lighter. Now tell them, My little finger is thicker than my father's waist. My father laid a heavy yoke on you. I will make it even heavier. My father scourged you with whips. I will scourge you with scorpions. Those poor scorpions, they didn't even see that coming. <laughs> and did, did you notice what Rehoboam did in these verses? He asked wise, experienced advisors for their counsel. But then in verse 8, he rejected their advice. It appears that he had already made up his mind about what he wanted to do. When these advisors told him what he didn't want to hear, he rejected their words, and he turned to a group of his peers who shared his values and experiences. Instead of shining light on his blind spots, they had the same blind spots that he did. They encouraged him to do what he already wanted to do anyway, and the results were disastrous. Rehoboam lost most of his kingdom that day because the people felt that he had abandoned them, so they abandoned him right back. Now, now it's easy for us to point a scolding finger at Rehoboam, but Rehoboam's peril and his temptation is our temptation as well. Paul warns Timothy in 2 Timothy 4.13, For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Now, now, we may hear this verse and be quick to say, yeah, that happens all the time. That's exactly what those people out there do. And while it may be true that people out there are doing that, Paul is not concerned with what people out there are doing. He's writing to Timothy, a Christian pastor, because this is a temptation for Christians in here to do as well. Because we all have itching ears. Because our hearts are sinful. We are naturally more repelled by God's truth than we are attracted to it. We naturally want to surround ourselves with people who think and feel and see things the way that we do instead of people who will challenge us in godly ways. So Paul's warning to Timothy is a warning to us. We need to have godly advisors in our lives who will challenge us, who will oppose our sinful desires. And when they speak God's wisdom to us, we need to receive it, even if we don't want to hear it in that moment. So, to review, the best way to prepare for tough decisions and challenging situations is to seek wisdom from God, to ask Him to supply what we need. In addition to that, we need to embrace a lifestyle of wisdom and then seek out godly advisors and then actually listen to them. But sooner or later, friends, the time comes when we just have to do something. In those moments, we may not always feel prepared. We may not feel like we have all of the wisdom and all of the information that we want. But sooner or later, we need to make a decision. And if we have pursued wisdom in these ways, we know that God's heart is inclined to give us what we need in those moments. So sooner or later, the time comes for us to trust God and to take the next steps in front of us. Again, in Proverbs, the book of wisdom, we find that the command to trust and obey God is paired up with his promise to guide us. The well-known and well-loved words of Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 remind us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, submit to him and he will make your paths straight. So what does this tell us? First, to trust. 
not just a little bit, not just part of the way, but trust all of the way. Our natural tendency is to lean on our own understanding. And I think this is especially true for self-reliant Midwesterners. Why is it, after all, that Indiana drivers will, will wave another car to go first at a four-way stop, even if they have the right of way? It, it, and, and this is a real thing. Um, a, after living in Florida for four years, I, I saw that in the same time it takes two Indiana cars to go at a four-way stop, five or six East Coast cars will go. And, and is that just because we're naturally polite? Well, we like to say that, but I think if we're honest, it's because maybe it's not always easy for us to trust other people. And if I'm at the four-way stop and I wave that other car to go ahead of me, I don't have to trust that other car. But if I go first, I have to trust that that person's going to wait for me. I have to trust that they're not going to rear-end me or tailgate me or do other annoying, obnoxious things. By making them go first, I actually hold on to control. And so in the same way, we can do that with our relationship with the Lord. It's easy for us to trust him with our words while keeping all of our weight on our own two feet. But are we willing to lean not on our own understanding, to lean so far on God that we're no longer the ones keeping ourselves from falling, but he is that one. And if it weren't for him, we would fall flat on our faces. Are we ready to trust in that way? Trusting him means that we're willing to let go of things. If we don't let go, we will stay stuck. It, but it also means placing God's purposes ahead of our own purposes. It means submitting to him, acknowledging his authority and his control in all of our lives. And this is hard. This is scary. But when we do this, his promise is that he will direct our paths. He will make them straight. Now, they may not go straight where we want them to go or think they should go, but they will lead us straight where he wants us to be. Acknowledging how difficult this can be, John Ortberg offers us this final challenge and encouragement. He says, sometimes we don't really want guidance so much as we want to avoid taking chances. God does not intend that guidance would be a shortcut to escape making decisions and taking risks. Indeed, God wants us to develop good judgment. And there is no way to develop it apart from a process that involves choices and risks. He sums up by saying, God's purpose and guidance is not necessarily to get us to perform the right actions. His purpose is to help us become the right kind of people. What is God doing in our lives? He wants to make us more like Jesus. Our Heavenly Father delights in making us wise because Jesus is wise. He's committed to making us holy because Jesus is holy. He never promises us that this path will be easy. In fact, he tells us we will have trouble. But then he says he will be with us to give us, to give us joy and strength for the journey. So let us then eagerly and earnestly follow him. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we come to you this morning because you are the God who loves us and you are the God who speaks your wisdom into our lives. We come to you, Lord, because we need you. We need your wisdom. We need your direction. We need your otherworldly supernatural mindset. But Lord, what we need most of all is to be made more like you. So Lord, we come to you this morning. We ask, Lord, that you would take our hearts, that you would renew our minds 
that you would give us the wisdom that we need, not just to face the decisions in our lives, but to thrive. But most of all, Lord, give us the heart and the mind of Christ so that all who see us will see you in us and through us. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you were encouraged by this message, be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you enjoy your podcast listening, and check out our other discussions and messages. To learn more about Warsaw Evangelical Presbyterian Church's worship services, ministries, and events, visit us online at warsawpresby.org or follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you again for joining us and have a blessed day.